21st annual Circle Fundraiser on Thursday, February 15th at the Alliant Energy Center from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. The event will celebrate the 10th anniversary of their YWeb Career Academy program and the impact of Vanessa McDowell Atlas's leadership as she transitions out of her role as CEO. Attending the Circle Fundraiser helps change the lives of thousands of women, children, and families every year through YWCA's 20 transformational programs in housing and shelter, employment and transportation, and race and gender equity. More information about the Circle Fundraiser can be found at ywcamadison.org. That's the 21st annual Circle Fundraiser on Thursday, February 15th at the Alliant Energy Center. Keeping you informed of community events and resources, this is WORT Madison. WORT's Chiliocracy is back at the Harmony Bar on Sunday, February 4th from 1 to 4 p.m. Featuring fantastic chili from area restaurants. Enjoy some toe-tapping bluegrass from the grazers while your taste buds help you decide the winner. This year's candidates are Baldwin Street Grill, Dottie Dumplings Dowry, Echo Tap, Harmony Bar, Just Veggies, Mickey's Tavern, Rotunda Cafe, Tiny's Tap House, and two teams from the Weary Traveler in their own head-to-head -head battle. Enter as a voter. $10 gets you samples, a plastic spoon, and a voting chip. Or be a lobbyist. $25 gets samples, a blue voting chip worth five votes, and a real spoon. Everyone gets a voter's notebook to keep track of your favorites. Who will be the Supreme Commander of Chile? Will the lobbyists sway the election? Come to the Harmony Bar, 2201 Atwood Avenue on Sunday, February 4th from 1 to 4 p.m. for Chiliocracy 7 and exercise your rights. It's political mockery served in crockery. All proceeds benefit WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am David Delier. We are celebrating our 25th anniversary on the air with Madison Labor Radio. Our goal is to give a voice to working people in South Central Wisconsin. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Annette Kuhlmann, a reader for 20 year, four years. Today we learn what's been going on at the East Side Shops Ice Cream Factory, learn about organizing in the Wisconsin Farmers Union, dig deeper into how workers are affected by the UW budget cuts, explore the history of right to work laws and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WRT and Labor Radio. Workers at the Ocean Spray Plant in Wisconsin have embarked on an effort to unionize. 
Labor Radio spoke to Dylan Gorman, the business manager for IBEW 965, prior to the vote by the workers that took place Thursday and Friday of this week. Why are the Ocean Spray workers in Wisconsin Rapids wanting to unionize right now? Part of the reason is because of the continued takeaways and really no voice in the workplace. The Ocean Spray Management has reduced what they call a PFP bonus. There used to be a potential for employees to earn up to a 10% bonus. And recently that was reduced to a potential of 7%. And on top of that reduction, the metrics were made harder to achieve. So their bonus was pretty much cut in half on a lot of their recent paychecks. There have been some employees that have had their pay frozen for up to two years. Other departments in the plant that have had pay freezes or very little increase compared to what's been going on with inflation. And then really when it just comes down to operations for scheduling and some overtime processes, they have no say in what that looks like. So the employer will come out and say, we need to get X amount of work done or certain things completed throughout the next couple months. They just tell everyone we can't allow anybody to have any time off. They call them blackout dates. They've not only allowed people not to have time off, but they also instruct people how their overtime is going to look. I think a lot of people accept the fact that the nature of the business and that they're going to have to be at work at those times, they would just like some say in how that looks and understand what the needs are of the business. So maybe they can come up with a few ideas of their own. How many workers work at that plant? 94 to 95 workers that are going to be affected by the vote. What do they do at the Ocean Spray plant there in Wisconsin Rapids? They take the raw cranberry and turn it into what you see in the store shelves. Every Ocean Spray facility produces a different product. And in Wisconsin Rapids, one of the big things that they produce is the craisin, but they also produce a concentrate that makes your cranberry juice. Why are they organizing with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers? We have a couple different ties to that area. We represent Alliant Energy as an example. Alliant Energy has a shop 200 yards away from the gate at Ocean Sprays. We also have another IBW local that's right in Wisconsin Rapids. Our presence has been around the area for quite some time. But I think when you saw the initial push for unionization, some of the workers there that have maybe been in the union before understood that the title of the union doesn't really necessarily represent the opportunity. Even though we represent electrical workers, we also represent manufacturing workers. And we represent electrical workers that work at a power plant facility who work very similar schedules and around-the-clock shifts just like they do at Ocean Spray. So we do bring some knowledge there. But really what we bring to the table is the expertise and the ability to negotiate a fair contract. We'll be a part of the process, but a majority of the negotiating committee will be workers right from Wisconsin Rapids. Our role is really to help them get that contract and make sure that the language is protected. Has Ocean Spray been pushing back and trying to get workers to vote no? Yeah, they've explicitly asked their workforce to vote no. Just as recent as yesterday, they had the CEO visit. His name's Tom Hayes from Massachusetts, flew in actually today and yesterday, meeting with workers at the facility and he wrote a personal letter to all workers and had it FedEx to their house saying, we'd really like you to vote no. Some of the things that were cited in the letter that a union won't bring you together, it only divide you, trying to make the union seem like a bad thing. And one thing that's important for people to understand is the union, no matter which unit it is, is really the workers. And that's what we've been reminding people is if you go through this process, 
the only thing you're agreeing to is not to negotiate individually, but to negotiate as a group. And when it comes to benefits and bonus structures, those are things that are really best handled as a group approach. And that's what I think a lot of people have realized and that they're stronger together. Vote results will be available this evening. That was Dylan Gorman. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. The Sherps Ice Cream Factory on the east side is the site of several workplace safety violations. Carol Weidel has the story. Federal investigators cited a Madison ice cream plant for violating multiple safety standards after responding to reports of ammonia release. On Monday, the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, announced that Shep's Ice Cream had 12 violations and proposed $147,000 in penalties. Responding to reports of workers being exposed to anhydrous ammonia, federal investigators found that the ice cream plant lacked sufficient process safety management procedures to control the release of hazardous chemicals. Exposure to anhydrous ammonia used in the refrigeration process can cause respiratory injuries and burns to the eyes and skin. Investigators with OSHA determined that AJLS Enterprises, operating as Shep's Ice Cream, failed to document that equipment was being operated consistent with best engineering processes, update procedures following audits, and respond to changes in the process. OSHA Area Director Chad Greenwood said, quote, Employees must continually evaluate their engineering processes and train workers on how to safely operate equipment. Every employer should embrace safety and health as a core value in their establishment, unquote. In addition to insufficient process safety procedures, OSHA noted multiple safety and health violations, including the lack of machine guarding, not having a written hazard communications plan, failing to update the emergency action plan, and ladder openings not protected from fall hazards. In 2022, OSHA established a regional emphasis program for the food manufacturing industry to address multiple hazards. AJLS Enterprises has 15 days from the receipt of the citations and penalties to comply, request an informal conference with OSHA's area director, or contest the findings before the Independent Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Matthew Conte is a rural organizer for the Wisconsin Farmers Union. Keith Steffen interviewed him for Labor Radio. Wisconsin Farmers Union had a lobbying day. How did that go? It went really well. We had over 50 members attend Lobby Day. We connected them each individually and in groups with their local legislators, state senate and state assembly members. And we talked about several different topics important to our members, including clean water, rural development, climate change, dairy, healthcare, nutrition and education, and nonpartisan redistricting. 
I noticed in your November, December magazine, there were a couple articles about immigrant workers on farms. And one of the articles mentioned driver's licenses for all. Do you have other legislative goals for immigrant workers on farms? Yeah, we would like to see more worker protections around immigrant labor on farms, as well as better housing conditions. But I believe currently in the legislature, there are no bills that address any of those issues. There's also farmer labor solidarity efforts. What kinds of work are you doing in that direction? That's specifically one of the projects that I'm working on. And through that, we're connecting with local labor unions, teachers unions, connecting with their representatives and their workers to showcase that farmers want fair prices for their products and workers want fair wages for their labor. And we're in the same boat when it comes to corporate consolidation, whether you're farmer growing your food, whether you're a worker working in meat processing or whether you're working at the grocery store. So we're just trying to make those connections. And for example, with the UAW strike last fall, we got some members together, went down to the picket line and dropped off some fresh produce and talked with the workers for a couple hours to see what the issues that they were going on strike for. And are you working with your local Central Labor Council? Yeah, I'm in contact with the West Central Area Labor Council, as well as the Milwaukee Area Labor Council. I live in an area that is covered by the South Central Federation of Labor. Do you know if Wisconsin Farmers Union has made direct contacts with Scuffle? Not yet, but I'm always willing to talk with them. Recently, I've had a couple meetings with Teamsters and the UFCW and some work directly related to us. They represent a lot of meatpacking places, as well as the Teamsters represent some berry creameries. You have links with other organizations as well? Yeah, we are willing to work with any support of labor nonprofits. I work with Citizens Action, Progress North. We also work with the Wisconsin Rural Coalition that involves a lot of different groups, including Wisconsin Public Education Network, Grow for Our Future. With your work on immigrant workers, you're also working with Voces de la Frontera? Yeah, we're working with Voces to help get better translations. We also work with Puentes Bridges, which does great work connecting farmers to their workers' families in South Central America, and they actually do take trips down there. You are also helping to promote the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign Day of Action in March. They were very supportive of our lobby day. Some of them came and talked with legislators on our lobby day, and we just want to give the helping hand back. Do you have anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? Feel free to check out Wisconsin Farmers Union. We always like to say, if you like food, you like farms. So anybody can become a member, especially if you're supportive of labor. The Universities of Wisconsin has identified $56 million shortfalls in the budgets of the comprehensive universities. Labor Radio is speaking to the unions at each of them. Today, Frank Amsbeck spoke with the union at Stevens Point. In 2018, Stevens Point was forced to make major cuts in staff and course offerings. More cuts were threatened in 2020. Today, faculty and staff expect that the branch campuses in Marshfield and Wausau be the targets. Labor Radio spoke with Lauren Gantz, Assistant Professor of English at Stevens Point and Co-President of SPARC, the Stevens Point Academic Representation Council, 
the Faculty and Instructional Staff Union at Stevens Point. She placed the overall assault on the comprehensives in this framework. I think that the main thing is just, you know, these cuts it's it's a manufactured crisis, right? I think a lot of folks in higher ed feel like these decades of austerity have kind of created this idea that there is scarcity, right, of resources. And so we have to streamline, we have to cut. But if we look at the history of the UW system and we see like in the past how well-funded we were and what that meant for the state of Wisconsin and what that meant for our students, especially since we have such a huge budget surplus statewide right now, this austerity, it's, it's like I said, it's a manufactured crisis and it doesn't have to be like this. There, there are other ways of doing things. What is the situation now at Stevens Point? We are in a position where we're stable for now. We are not in immediate danger of having massive cuts and layoffs, but that could definitely change, right? And I know that there's definitely concerns about our branch campuses. And so I think our colleagues at Marshfield and Wausau are definitely concerned about about what's happening with their positions. And even though the union at Stevens Point is not facing immediate cuts, they are responding to the overall attacks on the university. We are concerned with kind of the direction of the system as a whole. Uh, We kind of view ourselves as ground zero for a lot of the kinds of cuts and programming changes that other campuses are starting to see. There's a history here of the attempt to eliminate, especially the liberal arts, um, and force regional campuses to specialize on different degree programs. This is a direction that our current leadership would potentially support, moving away from comprehensives, moving more towards specialization, which would mean removing access for a lot of students, especially first-generation students and place-bound students to specific kinds of degrees. It would also mean a big cut to our faculty and instructional staff as well. The attacks on DEI are another big concern of the union, with many objecting to the deal that was made. The issue with the the DEI sort of compromise that leadership created. I know not everybody on our campus is in agreement about this. Some folks thought that we needed to take that deal, but there are other folks here who feel like that was not necessarily something that had to be done. University staff are also incredibly understaffed right now because they just cut a lot of those positions. And this has created a lot of of folks doing multiple jobs often, feeling a lot of burnout because of it. Thanks to Lauren Gantz for her insights regarding the ongoing assault on the comprehensive universities of the UW system. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Despite steep fines and contempt charges, public school employees in a suburb outside of Boston, Massachusetts are entering the third week of a strike against their school district in what is the longest work stoppage by educators in the state since the 1990s. Labor Radio has more on the mounting stakes faced by the workers. 
2,000 educators in the suburb of Newton, Massachusetts, are shutting down schools for the 11th day in a row, fighting what they say is a terminal crisis of student support in their classrooms. Teachers in the 21-school, 11,000-student district are represented by the Newton Teachers Association, an affiliate union of the 3 million-member National Education Association. Negotiations for a new contract between educators and the school district began in October of 2022. After failing to reach a deal before the contract's expiration last August, teachers continued to work, even though the school district was not budging on the union's largest outstanding demands over increasing mental health support staff for students and base pay for classroom aides. It was finally a late-night vote on January 18th when teachers, who are prohibited from striking under Massachusetts law, voted with 98% approval to walk off the job the next day. The state is one of 37 across the country with laws prohibiting educators from striking. Under the law, the state can levy daily fines against the striking union, a number that was set at $50,000 by the Massachusetts Superior Court soon after the strike began. Despite the mounting pressure from the school district and an injunction granted by the Superior Court ordering educators back to work, teachers remained on the picket line. Ashley Raven, a special educator for the district, said it was their students that were keeping them there. We would not be out here in the cold, in the rain, in the snow, if we were not fighting for the needs of our students and our co-workers. The fines are not going to stop us. They're not going to break us because we are out here fighting for the needs of our students. According to teacher Jamie Rinaldi, the mounting mental health crisis among his students is unprecedented and will require a commensurate investment from the school district to de-escalate. Schools look so different from how they did before COVID and the mental health needs of our students, the day-to-day -day social emotional needs of our students are unlike anything I've seen in my almost 20 years in the classroom. Now entering the 11th full school day and nearly third week on strike, teachers have accumulated nearly $600,000 in fines from the state a number that exceeds the union's liquid, but not total, assets, according to court documents. The NTA says that their main concerns are around funding for social workers in schools, as well as cost of living adjustments that they say are desperately needed for classroom assistance. After a negotiation session last week, bargaining committee member Ryan Norman-Dean said that the school district was still $15 million short of their demands. We have been appalled by the actions of Ruth Ann Fuller and her school committee who have stalled these negotiations for 16 months, hoping to balance Mayor Fuller's broken budgeting on the backs of our students and educators. Amidst the escalating tension between parents, the school board, and the union, high-profile individuals have intervened on both sides of the strike. For the teachers, a visit from NEA President Rebecca Pringle and performance by Massachusetts-based punk band Dropkick Murphys kept spirits high as the strike continued. For the school district, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey submitted a pleading to the state's labor board, requesting twice daily updates as to the status of the negotiations, calling the length of the closure, quote, unacceptable for students. A bargaining session that lasted through the early hours of this morning brought the school district and union proposals within $4 million, hammering out agreements on all but a small number of points before the session was called off. Negotiations on the final points resume this afternoon, but teachers say they will keep schools closed until they deliver the resources that their students and staff need. 
Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. Right-to-work laws pose challenges to workers and their unions in their quest to win decent contracts. Frank Amsbach has a story. Former Governor Walker's anti-labor laws still cast a long shadow over current union negotiations. The legislature not only gutted public sector union bargaining, but also attacked the private sector with the passage of the so-called right-to-work laws. While private sector unions such as the SEIU and Meritor fall under the National Labor Relations Act, the act also gives states the right to regulate union membership. Right-to-work laws are designed to create disunity and weaken the unions financially. They do this by making it mandatory for unions to represent all members of a bargaining unit equally and with vigor, but also saying that all members of the bargaining unit do not have to pay or join the union. The first objective of any union local entering bargaining is to build a unified, committed membership amongst those workers that it represents. That group of workers is called a bargaining unit, and the scope is agreed to by both management and the union. But as in the Meritor case, for example, the unit has many different kinds of workers, such as certified nursing assistants, maintenance workers, food deliverers, and the cooks that make the food. Each of these groups of workers have specific needs, and delivering on those needs with a fair wage scale and benefits is a real challenge for the union. At the same time, just as in the 1930s, there are many people in this bargain unit who do not speak English as a first language. Since organizational unity is the key to winning a good contract, then dividing the represented workers into two classes, members who pay their fair share and others is an objective of management. The right to work laws are designed specifically to encourage this type of division. In addition to organizational challenges, there are also financial consequences. The requirement of the union to represent all workers equally, while at the same time enabling some section of the represented workers not to contribute to the overall success, clearly weakens the union and makes the achievement of agreed-upon collective bargaining goals more difficult. Given these realities, local unions can respond in only one way if they want a chance of success. They must engage in a vigorous internal organizing project targeting the non-members. This is no easy task in many industries like healthcare. There is a huge turnover. There are significant language issues, meaning that the union must approach each new worker with material, preferably in their own language. Successful organizing campaigns are based on a strong steward system, working with their fellow stewards and workers to identify new hires and ask them to join. Often this type of campaign is led in the face of a well-organized company-led program of welcoming new hires and explaining that all good things about the job come from management. As negotiations begin at Meritor, and the possibility of winning legal recognition increases at UW Hospital, vigorous campaigns are in place at each location to bring about high union membership, the basis for successful bargaining. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. On an earlier show, Labor Radio reported that Starbucks employees at the Coffee Giants Marquette University location in Milwaukee had organized to affiliate with Starbucks Workers United. This Thursday, February 8th, there will be an NLRB authorized union election there. The vote will close by 5 p.m. 
the Milwaukee Starbucks store will attempt to join hundreds of Starbucks locations across the U.S. that have voted to unionize since 2021, including two in Madison, one on Main Street in Capitol Square, and another on State Street on the UW-Madison campus. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Thanks to editor Frank Emsbach, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, copy editor Simon Gordon, engagement editor Alice Herman, and to all our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And again, congratulations to Labor Radio for the 25th anniversary our place for a special perspectives and information on working people we can't get anywhere else. And I'm David Delier. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark. Thank you. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. North Street Cabaret presents the Arab Blues, an evening of electric fuzz and rhythmic excursions on Friday, February 2nd. Lebanese-Egyptian oud and guitar player Rami Gabriel and Egyptian percussionist Kareem Nagy create an electro-urban amalgam of Arab tradition and Chicago blues. They employ historical and contemporary instruments to reinterpret forms, melodies, and rhythms. The result is an original expression of immigrant artistry with passionate musicality and revolutionary attitude. More information can be found at NorthStreetCabaret.com. North Street Cabaret presents the Arab Blues on Friday, February 2nd at 8 p.m. Live music lives at WORT Madison. Big Easy Brass meets Caribbean Steel on Fat Tuesday, February 13th at the High Noon Saloon for Mardi Gras Bacchanal, featuring Mama Digdown's Brass Band and Panchromatic Steel. Having recently celebrated their 30th anniversary, Mama Digdown's will be rolling in hot with its high-octane blend of butt-shaking funk and New Orleans jazz. Panchromatic Steel has forged a new trail in a relatively short time, combining island styles with rock, pop, and jazz with steel drums, horns, vocals, and percussion. The two groups combine forces to honor musical traditions that are widely associated with the celebration of Carnival. More information can be found at high-noon.com. The High Noon Saloon presents a Mardi Gras Bacchanal featuring Mama Digdown's Brass Band and Panchromatic Steel on Fat Tuesday, February 13th. Live music lives at WORT Madison. I'm my ticket in my hair.